0: I think most people thought we were a little a little crazy people avoided 13th street that's just how it was nobody wanted to be around that the porn the drug use who would do what we were doing like it's not going to work
1: you're listening to philly who the podcast that tells the stories of the doers thinkers and performers of philadelphia My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and this week is the story of a New Yorker who came to Philadelphia to try to revitalize a neighborhood that the city had pretty much given up on. And how, in doing so, he became a passionate Philadelphian himself. The story of Craig Grossman and Philly's 13th Street Renaissance is now on Philly Who. Just a heads up, there is some cursing in this episode. So Craig Grossman is general partner at Arts and Crafts Holdings, which today is investing in the northern edge of Center City around Spring Garden Street. There are a couple of names floating around for that neighborhood, including Callow Hill and Spring Arts, but Either way, you can't miss the new things that have recently appeared there, including tons of factories repurposed into office and residential space, big public art installations, and the new elevated rail park. But well before Craig and his team started investing in that area, he worked to invest in another center city neighborhood, which today looks nothing like it did when he got here in the early 2000s. Back then, the 13th Street corridor was pretty desolate with tons of drug use, porn shops, and even prostitution. Many people called it Philly's red light district. Craig at the time was working in New York City and took on the 13th Street project under the direction of Tony Goldman, who was famous for his previous revitalizations of Soho in New York City and South Beach in Miami. Craig's path to Tony though was a little meandering He was from the New York metro area originally, and for many years had no idea what to do
0: in life. I've always been drawn to, you know, what I can see, what's tangible, what I can touch. Inside, I've always enjoyed looking at architecture and public art and the streetscape. And I've just been intrigued by the pedestrian and the relationship between the pedestrian and street and traffic and vehicular traffic and all of that. Yeah. So how did you come across your mentor? How did, Tell me about the first time you met Tony Goldman. Well, I actually met Tony when I was in college. I was at, at Brandeis and I believe I was probably a junior. It was probably 1988 or 89. And I had a very close friend at Brandeis who told me that his uncle was opening up a hotel in South Miami, in Miami Beach, and we should go check it out. And it turns out that my friend's uncle was tony and i was immediately you know enamored with everything about him i mean i can remember the day that i met him we're in south miami beach and it's hot and sunny he was wearing black corduroys he was wearing a blue denim long sleeve shirt and he was wearing these suspenders and they had albert einstein images all up and down the suspenders And then he also had this ponytail, this little gray ponytail. I had very long hair through a good chunk of my life. Uh, So down to the middle of my back, I had this big, crazy mane of brown curly hair. So that was one like commonality and thread that, you know, we both had ponytails and I was drawn to him.
1: Yeah, so by then, he's already made legend from the work that he did in revitalizing Soho, I think, in the 70s in New York City, and then South Beach in the 80s. So when you meet this guy, he's already got a degree of of prestige to him?
0: I mean, probably at that moment, I didn't. I just knew that I was drawn to him and I was his positive energy and, you know, the way he walked and he talked and he dressed and just the command of the crowd and, you know, his very artistic perspective on what he saw. So I was very intrigued with it and I made a point of of staying in touch. So th- at the time that you joined Tony and, and Goldman? Yeah, I didn't have any like big expectations at the time. I thought it was just going to be, you know, I'm going to be doing whatever I'm asked to do. You know, it was real estate 101 trying to be a sponge and soak up as much information as I possibly could. And it was, you know, soon after that, I started with Tony that Um, he asked me to take a a drive with him to philadelphia which i'm not actually sure i'd ever been to you know i was interested and intrigued with the fact that two hours later we were crossing the ben franklin bridge into the sixth largest city in america and before i knew it we were you know walking around the city and you know he quickly saw that real estate was inexpensive there was an opportunity to control Real estate and critical mass, which was a big part of placemaking and neighborhood revitalization, and two hours from Manhattan, so you know a fairly easy commute for him. Uh, he loved the architecture. He loved the grid of the city. It was 15 minutes to an airport. It was another couple hours south to Washington DC. A lot of things going for it that sort of yeah. checked all the boxes that he liked to consider when thinking about an urban redevelopment project. Tell me more about that, that day, you know, those conversations. What sort of things were you talking about as you were walking around and exploring the city? I just remember him thinking, you could just see it in his eyes that he was like, this is a real opportunity. This is, you know, this is my thing. This is what I do. I can make a change here. What was the Philly that you saw that day? Cause there are a lot of people in Philly now who weren't here at that time. It was very different. I like to use the metaphor of, you know, coming from Manhattan, which is a true 24 hour, seven day a week city. When I arrived in Philadelphia, it felt more like like a seven or an eight hour city. Hmm. It felt like you know every day at you know between four and five, people hopped in their cars, they pulled out of their garages on Sansom Street, and they left the city. Very little was open on Sundays. It was quiet, but you could absolutely see that there were tastemakers here. There were entrepreneurs that were beginning to do certain things that were exciting. I think Steven Starr had two restaurants. I think he had the original Continental and Budokan at that point. There wasn't a ton of like retail development taking place. There really wasn't any new construction taking place. So why did we see this opportunity, but people that had been in Philadelphia for so long didn't see it? Because when you really think about what we ended up doing, and the location of it i mean if you looked at the topography of you know the central business district it couldn't be more like obvious no, right? no brainer right so in the center of the central business district there's this you know what tony used to always talk about as a, a hole in the donut and there's all this activity around it there's this like super popular heavily dense residential community to the south with a large gay community to the north you had the convention center which was expanding at that point so you had million visitors coming through on an annual basis. Just to the east, we pushed up against Thomas Jefferson University and hospital. So there was a built-in customer base there. And then just to the west, you had, you know, Broad Street, which was being identified as the Avenue of the Arts. And you had all the theater there and, you know, City Hall and over just over the other side of of Broad, you had what was considered to be, you know, the Madison Avenue of, of Philadelphia. So Just seemed like all we had to do is like create some energy and like we'll fill that that hole in. Soon after Tony made the commitment, he pretty much told me that, you know, I was gonna be in Philadelphia and he didn't want to see me in New York anymore. How did you feel when he told you that? I was excited about the opportunity. I mean, other than, you know, having my family in, you know, Central Jersey and some family in Manhattan. And I had just actually I think my biggest, you know, bummer was the fact that I had just rented a rent stabilized apartment in Manhattan. And I was really excited that I had this like great space at a great price. <laughs> and I was not going to be able to like take advantage of that. But I really liked the fact that I, I didn't know anybody in Philadelphia. And I just felt like, you know, here's an opportunity for me to like really spread my wings. And it had that small town feel to it. But, yeah. you know, you're in a big city. And I was just excited. I met some, probably the first people I met were brokers that were either, you know, showing property or they potentially had tenants. And then I would begin to meet um, potential prospects, potential tenants. Now, as I understand your role in a project like this, you're sort of the curator of the
1: space, right? So the company is going to buy a bunch of properties and then it's your job to put stuff
0: at those properties. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, that was something that, you know, I'm a pretty good people person, I don't know if people would say that I have decent taste. I had a good understanding of what Tony's vision was. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I was able to begin to complete his sentences. We shared a taste level. You know, we knew we wanted to really find local entrepreneurs to help, you know, curate the neighborhood. And and that's what it was. I mean, it was really about meeting the tastemakers in town through word of mouth, getting introductions, people that were thinking about opening businesses, letting those people know that we were entrepreneurially friendly and we were willing to invest in them. And, you know, Tony knew, you know, if you could bring those types of folks to open those types of businesses, you know, you can create a neighborhood that doesn't exist anyplace else. Yeah. Who were the first folks that you discovered? That you were like, we need to get these people into this space. Marcy Turney and Valerie Safran were were two of the, the early introductions. I remember pretty vividly sitting with the two of them. And initially they wanted to do a home furnishing store yeah. called Open House, which still exists on 13th Street. And I remember sort of asking them the question, like, what products do you think you're going to carry? They sort of created a little bit of like, before there was a pinterest board out there you know they were like looking through magazines and tearing out pictures and brands and which which was great so they quickly moved into that as well and doubled the size and that's where the the original open house was and still still stands and you know I don't have to tell you you know what they've done and contributed to you know that building that block that street right that neighborhood and ultimately the city of philadelphia
1: oh yeah they've got a little a little empire there on 13th street what was the response of philadelphians when you said that you were going to you know take on 13th street which at the time was like kind of a red light district right with prostitution and like i don't know porn shops and stuff like that how did folks respond when you told them what you were up to
0: i think most people thought we were a little a little crazy um i met my my wife soon after arriving here in Philadelphia. And she was freaked out that I was gonna be heading back to New York soon because who would do what we were doing? Like it's not going to work. Yeah. So there were, I think there were a lot of naysayers out there that thought we were crazy to, to take on this project. There were also other Philadelphians you know, that had been here a while that I think maybe there was even some, some envy out there that mm. you know, we were getting a lot of press And we were talking about, you know, how wonderful this city is and what we could do to contribute to that evolution. And uh, there were some people that I guess didn't maybe like the excitement that we were bringing to the project. Yeah. Were there any moments that you thought it was too crazy to work? I never did. That's the funny thing about it. It's like I... I didn't know Philadelphia. I I didn't know the history of this pocket and, you know, how badly it was perceived to be. This is kind of a no-brainer. Like, let's just start doing what we do. Let's start taking off security gates. Let's start lighting up the buildings. Let's start painting. Let's get rid of the tenants that aren't positively contributing to the community. Let's start curating. Let's find some food and beverage to, to bring people to it. It's a community, right? And in order to have a good community, it's an orchestra. It's an orchestration. You
1: need many, many different pieces to all be doing their part for it to all work and to become you know, greater than the sum of its parts. So as you're looking at a big project like this, we're going to take over a bunch of space. We're going to revitalize an area. How do you make sure that all the pieces are falling into place?
0: Well, I mean, look, some of it is just you know, kismet and luck, and just what's what else is going on around you. It's not like we were doing this all on our own, right? Yeah. There was there were things happening in around us. You know, Jefferson was was becoming more aggressive with growing. You know, their campus. There was activity along Broad Street, sort of trying to identify and come up with that Avenue of the Arts name and bring attention to that. You want to find tastemakers, like I said, that also want to be a part of. The process and, and helping decide what direction the neighborhood moves in so you don't want to be so egotistical by saying hey here we are you know we're the landlord we're the master planner this is what's going to happen if you want it to be authentic you want to have their say you want to have their contribution where do you go to find tastemakers so you know especially back then a lot of it was through word of mouth i mean there were like i said there were people here in philadelphia Like Valerie and Marcy, for example. So Valerie was a Spanish teacher. Marcy was a chef working for Audrey Claire. We found, you know, Steve DeRoss, who came a little bit later into the picture, was cutting hair, but he was also playing around with, you know, making soap. There was a a young man, he went out and opened up a store called Paris Europa, where he was bringing in men's clothing when there, nobody else was doing that back then. So... You know, when you get some some interesting press and in a small town vibe, like especially 20 years ago, people hear what's going on and they find you.
1: So how did you then start to see the momentum as those first initial years progressed into, you know,
0: maybe a couple of years after that 13th Street was well on its way? Probably the biggest, I guess, igniter, if you will, of that street was the opening of a restaurant called Trust. Tony had been in this position before, and he was a true hospitality guy, loved being sort of in the front of the house, you know, orchestrating food, beverage, hospitality, hotel, customer service, that's what he was all about. You know, he said, if, if we're gonna invest in somebody else's restaurant, we might as well do it ourselves. So we actually opened up Trust. We brought in uh, Guillermo Pernod, who was our executive chef. And back then, Guillermo had a restaurant called Pasion which was like Cuban cuisine and, you know, the the most unbelievable skirt steak. And we opened up and it was a huge success in the beginning. A ton of people came through. So that was the beginning of it. Soon after I met John and Stephanie Raytano. And I remember actually taking them to dinner at Trust and sitting down with them right across the street from ultimately where, you know, they would commit to opening up Cappajero. And of course, back then, I mean, I remember plenty of people saying, "Like, who the heck is going to eat like this high-end gelato, four dollars and fifty cents in a Dixie cup? Like, no one's going to, no one's going to do that. No one's going to buy into that." But they opened soon after, and then you have the beginning of like two F and B spots that are getting a lot of great press. You know, there's color, there's there's texture, there's great flavor, there's activation, and it started to go from there. You know, the energy was so great on the street and in these spots you know, I didn't want to go home at night. You know, I wanted to just stay there and just continue to observe and continue to work it and meet other people. And, you know, there was interest, excitement, and, um, you started to meet people that wanted to be a part of it.
1: I want to ask about the name. What's in a name? How much does the name matter when it comes to something like this?
0: My opinion is that this was a, a neighborhood that had a lot of negative publicity. You referred to it as red light district, right? And, and, If you were to ask people back in like, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, people would avoid those few blocks of 13th Street. And that was a bit of a problem here, even just thinking about the pedestrian that would leave the convention center, how would they walk over to West Walnut Street? They would walk like Market Street and walk around City Hall, which is funky trying to walk around City Hall. People avoided 13th Street. That's just how it was. Nobody wanted to be around that the porn, the drug use—you know—the things that were going on back then. So we just felt, and that neighborhood felt like it was lacking identity. There were like there were multiple names that were out there. Was it East of Broad? Was it the neighborhood? Like, what is it? So, if possible, if you can provide some better presence and identity for this pocket, a pocket, a neighborhood, then great. Uh, one of the businesses that was there in the neighborhood, and they still happen to be there. Back then, they were called Gyro, which was like a marketing and advertising communications firm. Today, they're called Quaker City Mercantile. And, you know, they offered up their services to help out with a naming process and to throw a bunch of names out there. And there was ultimately a democratic process that took place where the businesses decided that they liked this name the best out of everything that was sort of tossed out there. And then, you know, you start to... Try to use it. Do you put it on your letterhead? Do you put it in your um, email signature? When you're talking to the press, do you mention it? You try to get the center city district to include it into their map. You start to use it and you see does it eventually get absorbed? Does it stick? And does it stick? Yeah. And ultimately it seems like Midtown Village has stuck.
1: Yeah. So then at what
0: point was it time for you to move on from this project? You know, fast forward, unfortunately, Tony Goldman became ill and passed away. And I sort of saw my life flash before my eyes. It was a a very dark, tough time for me. How how did you find out that he had passed? I was there in the hospital, and I was actually on a train coming back from Manhattan to Philadelphia that night. So I had been with him uh, pretty frequently when he really became ill. Uh, And I was very close to him. So I knew all along what was going on. You know, unfortunately he, he passed away and I just really started thinking about my, my future, my legacy, my kids. When you're doing this, your life
1: flashes before your eyes. You take a step back, reconsider everything. You have that moment, you know, is this how I want to be spending my time here on earth? Really? You decide to continue doing this. What, what is the
0: moment that you're chasing? Why, why do this? I've never been one to really like stop smell the roses look at my accomplishments take a step back and say oh wow you know here's this gelateria on the corner of 13th and samsung that nobody believed would ever be successful and look how that dilapidated storefront all of a sudden is lit and it's got beautiful colors and it's got energy and activation you know i was always sort of like all right that lease was done next so now you know you realize how fragile life can be And realized i wanted to i i enjoyed the process i enjoyed working with the entrepreneurs i enjoyed sort of holding their hands and going through that process i enjoyed the fact that every day was very very different and there were so many moving parts like you mentioned before Uh, i enjoyed the challenge but i think ultimately at the end of the day it was also really cool to be able to look back after 10 years or 15 years and you can do this even after you know six months even though like you know the the neighborhood revitalization placemaking process is is about patience. It's not like you're building 100 apartments and 18 months later, it's done and people are living there and you move on to the next project. This is a process that takes time. And once you realize that it takes time, and you understand the impact of it, and your ability to change the landscape of a city, that's pretty cool. So that was pretty impactful. Thinking about that, And I wanted to continue to, you know, to do good for the city. I wanted to enhance the vitality of the city for my kids. I'm raising my kids here in the city. At what moment
1: did you go from being a New Yorker who's in Philadelphia to being a Philadelphian?
0: Probably when my kids bought me an Eagles jersey, (laughs) which felt weird putting that on. The next project that you set out on, correct, was,
1: is Spring Arts. So what drew you to this area of town? What did you see in
0: it? The width of Philadelphia is 30 blocks river to river, right? It's a very walkable city. So when you're here for 15 years, it's not too difficult to cover every square foot of what people refer to as the central business district. So I became intrigued with the topography of the city, understanding where the energy was, what was going on, watching these sort of secondary or tertiary neighborhoods evolve like Northern Liberties and then seeing Fishtown and then that's pushing north to Kensington seeing what was happening in University City seeing what was taking place up in North Philly and in, in Temple's campus and seeing Temple pushing south so you saw a lot of this beginning to go on and you know my current business partner and I were beginning to explore opportunities and One pocket that we began to scratch our heads over was this area, really, um, this former industrial area, a bit of a a wasteland, no man's land, not a lot of activity or energy there, really between Vine Street and Spring Garden Street, Broad Street to Second Street, an interesting collection of these turn-of-the-century former industrial buildings a lot of missing teeth in the fabric you know surface parking lots buildings that had been torn down over the years what if we could do the same thing as sort of did along 13th street which is begin to activate right ignite change on the street turn the lights on upstairs clean the buildings light the buildings implement public art bring in the local entrepreneur the creative class and start to create a buzz what lessons from the 13th street
1: revitalization did you take into this maybe maybe things you do that you decided to do differently or maybe would approach differently
0: yeah i mean uh, you know every every neighborhood has um its own dna and you like to listen to like what was happening in that building or that on that street or in that neighborhood and that's going to provide a bit of a roadmap. map yeah. so I mean, a lot of differences you know with you know, here you had a lot of these like very, you know, masculine, strong masonry construction, former industrial uses, there was manufacturing, that was the heart of manufacturing back right. in the turn of the century. And, you know, when manufacturing was pushed out of the city, those buildings fell on tough times. It Wouldn't it be interesting if we could sort of reimagine what these buildings could be and bring today's makers into those buildings and highlight the buildings and and the architecture and the construction and then, you know, think about curating once again, like-minded kindred spirits into building a community that would, you know, hopefully begin to, to take off. So as you're working through a neighborhood, how do you work with the residents and
1: businesses that have been there for a while that are staying there? How do you go about working with them
0: to achieve a collective vision? When you're the new kid on the block, you'd like to meet the folks that are there. We'll go out of our way to meet those people. You try to find the other tastemakers that are there that are doing great things in the neighborhood. You share your overall abstract vision with them. You find out what their vision is as well. And collectively you come together and you realize, all right, you know, we're, we're like-minded. You know, there's a lot of synergies between what we're doing. We'd like to see the neighborhood organically evolve. You'd like to see this as an authentically Philadelphia community. You bring them in and you start to collaborate. Development
1: and the dirty word gentrification can be a pretty, you know, contentious topic. And just the the thought of folks coming into a neighborhood and buying a bunch of property and, and having a vision for it, you know, can be something that, you know, ignites some flames and people say some some tough, some some hard-hitting things.
0: Look, I, I get it. I mean, the I think one of the attributes to this area is that and the the, the focus and the development that we're implementing. There's very little residential buildings. Yeah. There aren't a lot of people living in this immediate area. So we're not displacing people. We're not kicking people out. We're not coming in and raising rents just for the sake of raising rents. So we're, we're cognizant of that. Yeah. And then the other thing that's just worth mentioning here is that this is an area that just didn't have much life. We have one building at four forty eight North Tenth Street, which originally was a uh, bicycle manufacturing company. It's a forty thousand square foot building. It was empty, didn't have any the, the original windows were blocked up with brick. So that's now almost a fully leased occupied building. We're planting trees, we're putting in new sidewalks, there's public art, there's we're lighting, we're there's projection. We're doing things that are enhancing and shining a light on a neighborhood that hasn't seen much love in fifty or sixty years. So to some extent, we're, you know, we're fortunate that we're not doing this in the middle of a residential area or near a lot of residents. Now, I understand that, you know, things may, their rents may get impacted over time with what we're doing, but we're going to do our best to make sure that this community is highlighted by the local entrepreneur. Yeah. And we're going to be as sensitive as we can to keeping rents at a place where they can afford to be and hopefully, you know, business will be strong and it'll work for for all parties involved. Do you ever take anything that people say to heart really? Like you personally? I used to, that was something that I used to do regularly when I first started out, just everything that people would say, I would take it very personally and I would take it home with me and I would struggle with it, you know, because you don't want to be perceived as the one or the group that's like doing anything that's going to bring negativity or negatively affect somebody's future or livelihood or, but I don't do that anymore because I understand that this is a, this is a process. It's a means to an end. And there's a lot of, uh, good that we're doing. If you could send a message to yourself in the
1: past at any moment in time, butterfly effect aside, what would you say? and, And where would you send it?
0: Well, I touched upon this earlier that like a lot of people, I'm a sensitive guy. I don't like to hear somebody say something negative about me that I was responsible for, you know, the leak in his space and I'm a bad guy and I'm the bad landlord and I'm looking out for myself and it's gentrification is this and I'm the slumlord and this. I, nobody wants to hear that stuff. That used to really hit hard. And I would take that home with me and I would fall into a bit of a funk. It would probably take me a couple days to really like move on from that shit happens, especially in these old buildings. And, you know, I make a promise to my customers, my tenants that something bad happens and it's going to, we're going to be there right away. We're going to attend to it. We're going to do our very best to remedy the situation and know that, that I have good intentions. So I don't personalize when those thoughts come out and are expressed to me. Whereas before I used to, so I would, I'd go back 15 years and I'd say, remember to breathe. It's not personal it comes with the territory roll with it you're doing a lot of good out there what excites you most about philadelphia as it is today when i mentioned to you earlier about you know philadelphia feeling like a seven or eight hour city i will say that i I, it also feels like every year since i've been here give or take we've gained like a half hour So I don't know where we are. getting there. Yeah, I guess that's
1: like, what, 20? I don't know. I don't know, right? Getting close. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at podfillyhoo.com. Here's a very, very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons who are Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, and Matt Glick. If you'd like to join them in the Philly Who community discord and get bonus content, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Philly Who. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio, powered by CIC, and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi, Jackson Neal, and Lauren Hunter, editing by Max Graham, artwork by Lauren Carhart, and a special thanks to Steve Grass. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next week.